Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 13. Job 13 represents the heart of Job's fourth speech in response to the counsel of his friends. And it brings us near to the end of the first round of dialogue. Job opened the debate by cursing the day of his birth. His friends replied each in turn. And now here in chapters 12 to 14, we have Job's closing statement. So far, Job's friends have not been able to explain his situation. They have argued for a proverbial understanding of the world. Basically, their entire worldview revolves around three simple premises. Premise number one, God is sovereign. Premise number two, God is just. Premise number three, people always get what they deserve. And based on that logic, it seems clear to everyone, or almost everyone, that Job must be a very great sinner, given that he has experienced a great deal of pain and suffering. And the solution seems just as obvious. Repent, fall on your face, roll in the dust. Let God see that you agree with his assessment of your life. Make what sacrifices he requires and then arise and return to your former blessing. Bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle. Job, however, will not get on board. He does not believe that this simple view of things adequately explains what has happened to him. Job does not claim to be sinless, but he will not accept that his peculiar suffering is directly attributable to some particular sin in his life. Job does not disagree with the theology of his friends, per se. He agrees that God is sovereign, and he agrees that the universe generally rewards wisdom and punishes wickedness. And yet it appears to him as though God is working a mysterious plan. The equation seems disturbed and irregular. Sometimes people don't get what they deserve. Sometimes justice is delayed or deferred or distorted, or at least so it appears. Job says that in chapter 12, verse 6. He says, The tent of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure. Job has spotted an anomaly in the universe. More than that, I guess you could say, Job is an anomaly in the universe. His experiences have convinced him that the universe cannot be explained by an appeal to simple and proverbial wisdom. There has to be more going on here that we can't see. That is Job's essential contention in the first round of the dialogue, and we will hear him develop that assertion in this middle portion of his final speech in the section. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. 
Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Here, Job says, he didn't need a lesson in Wisdom 101. He could very easily have taught that class himself. But there is obviously more going on here than can be explained by an appeal to mere wisdom. That's why Job wants to speak to God. Job knows that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Therefore, Job is seeking revelation. If you really want to understand the world, you need to hear from God. Asking other men to explain the universe to you is like one hamster asking another hamster to explain the mysteries of the habitat. Why does the food come when it does? Why does the wheel turn and yet go nowhere? Who brings the water and who changes the shavings? I'm sure some hamsters have better ideas about those things than others, but equally sure is the fact that only the owner of the hamsters could ever tell a truly satisfactory story. And that is what Job is after. Job has grown tired of the fortune cookie wisdom of his friends. They are proverbs of ashes, and no one is even dealing with the full set of facts at their disposal. So if they really want to be helpful, they should just shut up. David Atkinson summarizes this final speech of Job in this section in exactly that way. He has Job saying, These worthless physicians merely whitewash the problem why don't they just shut up, closed quote. That's what Job is saying. You guys aren't wrestling with the complexity of this situation. You're just going from fortune cookie to fortune cookie, hoping to stumble upon something that is helpful. Stop. Just shut up and let's sit here in silence for a minute and think. And there's an important lesson here for us. Remember, one of the reasons we read the book of Job is to learn how to minister to people who are suffering. One of the things we're seeing here is how unhelpful half-truths and limp platitudes are to truly hurting people. If you aren't going to think deeply about the world, and if you aren't going to deal honestly with all of what the Bible says, then maybe you should keep your mouth shut. As a pastor, I can tell you that I have seen more people hurt by bad theology than by just about anything else I can think of. The work of God in a fallen world is a difficult thing to understand. And so ministering to people who have been bruised and battered in this world requires thoughtfulness, humility, and consideration. You can't just pick your favorite proverb and apply it willy-nilly. In fact, it is clear from reading the book of Proverbs that the user is required to exercise discernment as to when or if a particular principle should be applied. So consider, for example, Proverbs 26.4. 
which says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The message there seems to be that if you get into an argument with a fool, then you're in danger of appearing to be a fool yourself. Better to just stay silent when dealing with people who aren't listening anyway. However, have you ever read the very next proverb? Proverbs 26, 5, one verse later, says this, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, apparently, there is a time to point out to fools the foolishness of their own ways. But how do you know what time it is? How do you know which principle, which proverb to apply? Do we answer the fool according to his folly, or do we not? And of course, the answer is, it depends. It depends on the person you're talking to. It depends on the situation you find yourself in. Part of wisdom is knowing when to apply the wisdom that you have and when not to. And that is the part of wisdom that Job's friends do not possess. Because it's not that they are wrong. It's that they're saying true things that don't apply and that aren't helpful at all in this particular situation. And so Job is suggesting here that they ought to just be quiet for a while so that he can think and wrestle his way through his situation. Verse 13, Let me have silence, and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. If you're a Bible reader and of a certain age, you may know that verse 15 has undergone a fair bit of revision over the last two generations of English Bible translation. The old King James Version has it as, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. That's a marvelous translation in terms of its poetry. Preachers used to say, Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You'd have to be a very poor preacher to make a hash of a verse like that. However, in the first round of updates on the old authorized version, or King James Version, as it's known over here, several translations went in a different direction, a more negative and pessimistic direction. So the RSV, for example, translated it, Behold, he will slay me. I have no hope, yet I will defend my ways to his face. That doesn't sound very encouraging at all. It sounds like Job wants to have his audience with God to plead his case, but he holds out no hope whatsoever for a positive outcome. Most modern translations revert to the optimism of the old King James Version. The word in question is obscure, but the surrounding context strongly suggests that Job believes now that traditional wisdom will never be able to explain his situation. God is just. But this situation is confusing and requires divine revelation. God must speak. And the assumption is that when God speaks, the situation will be made clear. So I think the ESV is accurate, if not quite as poetic as the old King James Version. I still like it as, Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because that is the essential statement of faith in a broken and fallen world. John Calvin, in fact, 
wrote a whole sermon on this section of Job's speech. In it, he compares God to a wise and benevolent surgeon. The surgeon knows when and where to attack the disease and when to wait and stay his hands. Calvin says, Let us not think it strange if he does not heal them at once, for the disease must first be made ripe, and then God can apply his hand and find suitable remedies. Let us know then that God knows what is good and proper for us, and let us wait for him in patience. C.S. Lewis used a similar metaphor and came to roughly the same conclusion, although with a little more nervousness and hesitation than did Calvin. Lewis said it this way, Suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. C.S. Lewis there is saying, we have to imagine because it seems likely to be true that what we're up against in the universe is a patient and benevolent surgeon. And, And that's why sometimes our prayers for the suffering to stop go unanswered. For Lewis, this understanding came as something of a mixed blessing. He wrote, The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. Closed quote. It seems that Job was more aligned emotionally with Lewis here in his appreciation of this new theology that he had discovered. God is, in fact, like a surgeon. Sometimes he does things, painful things, not because he is unjust, but because he is good and he is doing helpful things that we do not yet understand. Job, and to a lesser extent, Lewis, trusts that these things will be ultimately for our benefit. But they both know from experience how incredibly painful these divine administrations can be. Verse 16, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Ultimately, Job's hope is in the justice and goodness of the Lord. He knows that wicked people 
will not come before the Lord. He knows that God is holy, and therefore he trusts that if he gets before God, and if he has the conversation he wants to have, then there will be a satisfactory answer. Job expresses terror at the prospect. Who can stand before God and make a coherent case for mistreatment? Job is not perfect. He admits that in verse 23. So he expects the presence of God to be overwhelming. But he also knows that if he can stand there, he will find the answers he has been searching for. All hangs now on the self-disclosure of God. The world is confusing. Job's strength ebbs away, but God does not change. He is holy, he is just, and he is good. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, yet will I maintain my ways before him. I don't understand God, but I believe you are good. There's a lady in my Thursday morning prayer group who often says to the Lord in prayer, we cannot always trace your hand, but we can always trust your heart. Old Testament and new, that is faith in a fallen world. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 